Chapter Six, Part One of American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter Six, The Stage, Part One. The golden age of American acting was not so very long ago. Most white-haired men remember it and love to talk of the days of Booth and Forrest and Charlotte Cushman. Joseph Jefferson, the last survivor of the old regime, died just the other day, and to the very end showed the present generation the charm and humor of Bob Akers and Rip Van Winkle. No doubt that golden age is made to appear more golden than it really was by the mists of time, but undoubtedly the old actors possessed a mellowness, a solidity, a sort of high tradition now almost unknown. These qualities were due in part, perhaps, to the long and arduous stock company training, where, in the old days, every actor must serve his apprenticeship, and in part to the study of the classic drama which had so large a place in stock company repertoire. Success was infinitely harder to win than it is today. There were fewer theaters, so that the great actors were forced to play together to their mutual advantage and improvement. The multiplication of theaters at the present time and the vast increase of the theater-going public has led to the star system, to the placing of an actor at the head of a company as soon as he has won a certain reputation. And since care is taken that the star shall outshine all his associates, it follows that he has no one to measure himself with. He is no longer on his mettle, and his growth usually stops then and there. But let us be frank about it. The attitude of the public toward the theater has changed. Today, we would not tolerate the heavy melodramas which enchained our parents and grandparents. The age of rant and fustian has passed away, and Edwin Forrest could never gain a second fortune from such a combination of these qualities as Metamora. We are more sophisticated. We refuse to be thrilled by Ingomar, no matter how loudly he bellows. What we ask for principally is to be amused, and consequently the great effort of the theater is to amuse us, for the theater must cater to its public. So, if the stage today is not what it was fifty years ago, the fault lies principally in front of the footlights and not behind them. To the student of American acting, one name stands out before all the rest. The name of Booth. No other actors in this country have ever equaled the achievements of Junius Brutus Booth and of his son Edwin Booth. They possessed the genius of tragedy, if any men ever did, and no one who saw them in their great moments can forget the impression of absolute reality which they conveyed. Junius Brutus Booth was a son of an eccentric silversmith of London, and was born there in 1796. Let us pause here to remark that, just as the greatest Frenchman who ever lived was an Italian, and the greatest Russian woman a German, so most of the early American actors were either English or Irish. This sounds rather Irish itself, but it is true. Certainly, in the end, Napoleon Bonaparte became as French as any Frenchman, and the Empress Catherine II Russian to the core.
and the english and irish actors who came to these shores in search of fame and fortune and who found them and spent the remainder of their lives here have every right to be considered in any account of the american stage which they did so much to adorn junius brutus booth then was born in london in seventeen ninety six twenty years before his father had been so carried away by republican principles that he had sailed for america to join the ranks of the army of independence but he was captured and sent back to england so it will be seen that he was something more than a mere silversmith but he was very successful at his trade and was able to give his son a careful classical education to fit him for the bar imagine his chagrin when the boy after a short experience in amateur theatricals announced his intention of becoming an actor he secured some small parts made a tour of the provinces and finally in london engaged in a remarkable war with the great tragedian edmund keene which divided the town into two factions but booth tired of the struggle in which the odds were all against him and in eighteen twenty one sailed for america he won an instant success and was a great popular favorite until the day of his death he was a short spare muscular man with a pale countenance set off by dark hair and lighted by a pair of piercing blue eyes and he possessed a voice of wonderful compass and thrilling power upon the stage he was formidable and tremendous giving an impression of overwhelming power in which his son perhaps never quite equaled him shortly after his arrival in america booth bought a farm near baltimore and there on november thirteenth eighteen thirty three edwin booth was born there was a great shower of meteors that night which if they portended nothing else may be taken as symbolical of the career of america's greatest tragedian he was the seventh of ten children all of whom inherited in some degree their father's genius it was not without a trace of madness and reached a fearful culmination in john wilkes booth when he shot down abraham lincoln at fort's theatre in washington from the first edwin booth felt himself destined for the stage his father did not encourage him but finally in eighteen forty nine consented to his appearance with him in the unimportant part of trestle in king richard the third from that time on, he accompanied his father in all his wanderings, and partook of the strange and sad adventures of that wayward man of genius. In 1852, he went with his father to California, and was left there by the elder Booth, who no doubt thought it the best school for the boy's budding talent. There, in the Sandwich Islands, and in Australia, among the rough crowds of the mining camps, he had four years of the most severe training that hardship discipline and stern reality can furnish amid it all his genius grew and deepened and when he returned again to the east in eighteen fifty six he was no longer a novice but an accomplished actor his last years in california had been shadowed by a great sorrow the sudden and pitiful death of his father the elder booth had for years been subject to attacks of insanity brought on or at least intensified by extreme intemperance on one occasion he had attempted to commit suicide on another he had had his nose broken an accident which so interfered with his voice that he did not regain complete control of it for nearly two years on his return from california where he had left his son he stopped at new orleans and remained there a week performing to crowded houses 
He then started north by way of the Mississippi and was found dying in his stateroom a few days later. He had been caught in a severe rain as he left New Orleans. A cold developed, complications followed, and for 48 hours he lay unattended in his stateroom, without that medical attention which he was unable or unwilling to summon. He died November 30, 1852, and his body was interred at Greenmount Cemetery, Baltimore, in a grave afterwards marked by a monument erected by his son Edwin. This was only one of many tragedies which darkened the life of Edwin Booth, for, to use the words of William Winter, he was tried by some of the most terrible afflictions that ever tested the fortitude of a human soul. Over his youth, plainly visible, impended the lowering cloud of insanity. While he was yet a boy, and while literally struggling for life in the semi-barbarous wilds of old California, he lost his beloved father under circumstances of singular misery. In early manhood, he laid in her grave the woman of his first love, the wife who had died in absence from him, herself scarcely past the threshold of youth, lovely as an angel, and to all who knew her, precious beyond expression. A little later, his heart was well-nigh broken, and his life was well-nigh blasted by the crime of a lunatic brother that for a moment seemed to darken the hope of the world. Recovering from that blow, he threw all his resources and powers into the establishment of the grandest theater in the metropolis of America, and he saw his fortune of more than a million dollars, together with the toil of some of the best years of his life, frittered away. Under all trials, he bore bravely up and kept the even, steadfast tenor of his course. Strong, patient, gentle, neither elated by public homage, nor embittered by private grief. It has been said that Booth returned from California a finished actor. He had, besides, the prestige of a great name, and he was welcomed with open arms. He had not yet reached the summit of his skill, but he showed an extraordinary grace and a spirit ardent with the fire of genius. From that time forward, his career was one of lofty endeavor and of high achievement, in the great characters of Shakespeare, especially in those of Hamlet, Richard III, and Iago, he had no rivals, and no one who witnessed him in any of these parts ever outlived the deep impression the performance made. During the last two or three years of his life, his health failed gradually, and he was finally compelled to leave the stage. On April 19, 1893, he suffered a stroke of paralysis from which he never rallied lingering in a semi-conscious state until June 7th, when he sank rapidly and died. Of his art, no words can give an adequate idea. It was essentially poetic, full of a strange and compelling charm. His great moments laid upon his audience the spell of his genius, and rank with the highest achievements of any actor who ever lived. His countenance, that face which no man ever saw, and from his memory banished quite, the eyes in which are Hamlet's awe, and Cardinal Richelieu's subtle light. As Thomas Bailey Aldrich wrote of Sargent's portrait, which heads this chapter, was a strange and moving one, and in range of expression unsurpassed. His eyes were especially wonderful, dark brown, but seeming to turn black in moments of passion, and conveying, with electrical effect, the actor's thought. He was unique. He stood apart. The American stage has never produced another like him. Second only to Edwin Booth in sheer glory of achievement stands Edwin Forrest. 
He fell far below Booth in grace, in charm, and in poetic insight, but he surpassed him in physical equipment for the great parts of tragedy, particularly in his voice, magnificent, vibrating, with an extraordinary depth and purity of tone. Unlike Booth, Forrest came from no family of actors, nor inherited a name famous in the annals of the stage. He was born in Philadelphia in 1806, his father being a Scotchman, employed in Stephen Girard's bank, and making just enough money to keep his family of six children from actual want. He died when Edwin was thirteen years old, and his widow, by opening a little store, managed to support the children. She was a serious and devout woman, and decided that Edwin should enter the ministry. But meantime, he must earn a living, so he was apprenticed to a cooper. How long he stayed with the cooper, nobody knows, but it could not have been long, for already he was fired with an ambition to be an actor, and after some experience as an amateur, astonished and grieved his mother by announcing that he was going on the stage. He made his first appearance on the 27th of November, 1820, as young Norval, in Holmes' tragedy of Douglas, and was an immediate success. His youth, remember he was but fourteen, his handsome face and manly bearing, and, above all, that wonderful and resonant voice won the audience at once, and his career was begun. But many hardships awaited him. The theaters of New York and Philadelphia had their companies of well-known and well-trained actors. There was no hope for him in either of those cities. But at last, he secured an engagement to play juvenile parts at Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Lexington, and other towns of the Middle West, at a salary of $8 a week. This, of course, was scarcely enough to keep body and soul together. But all Forrest wanted was a chance and he did not murmur at the suffering and hardship which followed. For business was poor, and Forrest did not always receive even that eight dollars. The end came at Dayton, Ohio, where the company went to pieces. Forrest, without money and almost without clothes, walked the forty miles to Cincinnati, where, after a time, he found another position. Such was the beginning of his career and this hard novitiate lasted for four years until in eighteen twenty six at the age of twenty he was able to return to new york and secure an engagement at the old bowery theatre he was an instant success and from year to year his wonderful powers seemed to increase until he became easily the most famous actor of the day but his fame was soon to be dulled by unfortunate personalities Conceiving a jealousy of MacReady, the famous English actor, he hissed him at a performance in Edinburgh, and when MacReady came to America in 1849, Forrest's followers broke in upon a performance at the Astor Place Opera House, and a riot followed in which 22 men were killed. A quarrel with his wife led to the divorce court, and the suit was decided against him. The end was pathetic. He had been troubled with gout for a long time, and in 1865 it took a malignant turn, paralyzing the sciatic nerve, so that he lost the use of one hand and could not walk steadily. His power had left him, and in the five years that followed he played to empty houses and an indifferent public, not content to retire, but hoping against hope that he might in some way regain his lost prestige. A stroke of paralysis finally ended the hopeless struggle. Forrest's art was of a cruder and more robust sort than Edwin Booth's, 
who, by the way, was named after him. He was greatest in characters demanding a great physique, a commanding presence, and, yes, let us say it, a loud voice. Coriolanus, Spartacus, Virginius. Those were his roles, and no man ever looked more imposing in a Roman toga. Forrest, during his English engagement of 1845, and on other occasions, shared the honors with a remarkable actress, Charlotte Cushman, and perhaps none ever had a more astonishing career. Born in Boston in 1816, her youth was one of poverty, for her father died while she was very young, leaving no property. The girl was remarkably bright, and soon developed a contralto voice of unusual richness and compass. She sang in a choir and assisted to support the family from the age of twelve, securing such musical instruction as she could. In 1834, she made her first appearance in opera and scored a tremendous success. A splendid career seemed opening before her, when suddenly, a few months later, her voice, strained by the soprano parts which had been assigned her, failed completely. Her friends advised her to become an actress, and she went diligently to work, not allowing herself to despond over that first great disappointment. For the next seven years, she worked faithfully, learning the new profession from the very bottom. I became aware, she said, that one could never sail a ship by entering at the cabin windows. He must serve and learn his trade before the mast. In that way, she learned hers, playing minor parts, doing cheerfully the drudgery of her profession, refusing all offers for more important work until she felt herself thoroughly capable of undertaking it. One would wish that her example might be taken to heart by her sisters of the present day. At last her chance came. In 1842, William C. MacReady, the great English tragedian, visited the United States, and in Charlotte Cushman he found a splendid support. Indeed, she divided the honors with him. A year later, she went to London and won immense applause. Since the first appearance of Edmund Keane in 1814, said a London journal, in speaking of her first night as Bianca, never has there been a debut on the stage of an English theatre. For eighty-four nights she appeared with Edwin Forrest. All my successes put together, she wrote to her mother, would not come near my success in London. In the winter of 1845, she tried one of the most daring experiments ever made by an actress, appearing as Romeo to her sister Susan Cushman's Juliet. It was a notable success. Her deep contralto voice made it possible for her to give a complete illusion of the young and handsome lover. She played other male characters in after years, notably Hamlet, and created a deep impression in them. Her sister was a lovely girl and an accomplished actress, and their Romeo and Juliet ran for two hundred nights. Susan Cushman would no doubt also have won high fame as an actress, but she soon retired from the stage, marrying the distinguished chemist and author James Sheridan Muspratt of Liverpool. Charlotte Cushman returned to America in the fall of 1849 and was received with acclamation. There was never any question after that of her position as the greatest English-speaking actress, and that position she easily maintained until her death. She gathered wealth as well as fame, built a villa at Newport, and in 1863 earned nearly $9,000 for the United States Sanitary Commission by benefit performances. Energetic, resolute, 
faithful, impatient of any achievement with the highest, she seemed the very embodiment of many of Shakespeare's greatest creations. She possessed a strange and weird genius, akin, in some respects, to that of Edwin Booth, and her delineation of the sublime, the beautiful, the terrible, has never been surpassed. A noble interpreter of noble minds, Charlotte Cushman stands for the supreme achievement of the actress. What both and Forrest were to tragedy, William J. Florence was to comedy. Indeed, he may be said to have gone farther than either Booth or Forrest, for he founded a school and gave to the stage the chivalrous, light-hearted, and lucky Irishman who has since become so familiar to the drama, however rare, he may be outside the theater. Florence was born in Albany, New York, in 1831. His family name was Conlin, from which it will be seen that he came naturally by his insight into Irish character but he changed his name when he went upon the stage to the more romantic and euphonious one of florence he gave evidence of possessing unusual dramatic talent while still a boy and made his debut on the regular stage at the age of eighteen he had the usual hardships of the young actor playing in various stock companies without attracting especial attention and finally in eighteen fifty three marrying melvina prey herself an actress of considerable ability. It was at this time that Florence began to find his field in the delineation of Irish and Yankee characters, his wife appearing with him, and together they won a wide popularity. Florence wrote some plays and a number of sprightly songs, which his wife sang inimitably. He himself improved steadily in his acting, and especially in the gentle humor and melting pathos with which he clothed his characters, stood quite alone. A tour through England added to his fame, and his songs were soon being sung and whistled in the streets pretty generally wherever the English tongue was spoken. One song in particular, called Bobbing Around, had immense popularity. But Florence was more than a mere songwriter Irish comedian. In his later years, he proved himself to be an actor of high attainments, and no one who ever witnessed a performance of The Rivals with Jefferson as Bob Akers and Florence as Sir Lucius O'Trigger will ever forget his finished and glowing impersonation. End of Chapter 6, Part 1 Recording by William Tomko.